Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, um, for those of you who are wondering, yes, the United States Army Corps of Engineers is killing cormorants. The double-crested ones, ooh, we hate those. Uh, They've shot and killed 125 adult cormorants and sprayed oil. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, you you and me are paying for this, ladies and gentlemen, sprayed oil on more than 1,700 eggs on an island at the mouth of the Columbia River uh, as part of the efforts to reduce the bird population. Well, killing them will do it. That'll do her. This began early this month, beginning of this month. I don't think the birds knew what was what was coming. During the day, the crews from the Army Corps of Engineers and the Department of Agriculture's Wildlife Services survey the island. It's called East Sand Island. Mmm, sounds good. Good place for birds and the cormorant's habitat, according to the Corps spokesman. But the birds are shot at night. It's a little, a little, um, oh, I don't know, sneaky. Maybe they got good eyesight at night. I don't know. Uh, using rifles equipped with silence, silencers. What is this, the mafia? And lead-free ammunition, as required by the environmental impact statement. Well, you're, you're killed, but you're not poisoned. See? See how nice they are at the Army Corps? Teams work in twos and threes, armed with twenty-two caliber rifles and night vision scopes. So they, <laughs> so they can see what they're shooting at night, I should hope. That's meant to reduce disturbances to other species. Shh, we're only killing the other birds. And also helps hunters identify cormorants that have chicks. They're trying to avoid killing roosting pairs to avoid leaving hatchlings without parents. Isn't that nice? That's your Army Corps of Engineers, ladies and gentlemen. They don't want to orphan no cormorant. Shot cormorants, in case you're wondering, are removed from the island and surrounding waters as quickly as possible using ATVs and small inflatable boats taken to a nearby disposal area where they're either incinerated or burned. Current plans are to continue removing the birds from the island for several more months. I know it will go into the fall, said the spokesman for the Army Corps. In case you're late to this story, this is the Army Corps' way of dealing with the fact that uh, salmon are dying off in the Columbia River Basin. And rather than do anything about their dams... They decided to cull, excuse me, kill, excuse me, cull cormorants. But double-crested ones. You single-crested ones, you're on notice. Boots on the ground, ladies and gentlemen. Remember way back when we were told we wouldn't need boots on the ground to defeat IS. We would just, you know, they can, it's their fight, and they, so now we're this year. And our top U.S. military officer, uh, has g- grabbed on to a, a lovely metaphor for the expanding American footprint, the re-expanding American footprint in Iraq. Bases sprinkled around Iraq. We can't, you know, keep the whole country safe. These are lily pads. Isn't that sweet? That's where frogs live. We're going to shoot the frogs next. Our campaign is built on establishing these lily pads that allow us to encourage... Oh, Tom. Yeah, lily pads. Thank you. To encourage the Iraqi security forces forward, says the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. As they go forward, they may exceed the reach of the particular lily pad, leading to the creation of new lily pads. It's lily pad creep. The strategy may be a new one. 
It has been done before in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Similar campaigns were carried out. They were called inkblot strategies. Okay, glad we had those meetings to come up with a new name because it's working so well. But the, the name is better, you see, this time. So now the uh, Sunday morning yak shows, of course, here in the United States were filled with talk about Hillary Clinton's rally yesterday at Roosevelt Island in New York City. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt had the uh, f- proclaimed the four freedoms. Hillary Clinton proclaimed the four fights. Uh, let me quote from uh, a speech. Quote, My focus is on working families, people trying to make house payments and car payments, working overtime to save for college and do right by their kids. So often powerful forces and powerful interests stand in your way, and the odds seem stacked against you, even as you do right for you and your family. Big tobacco, big oil, the big polluters, the pharmaceutical companies, the HMO. Sometimes you have to be willing to stand up and say no so families can have a better life. And that's the difference in this election. They're for the powerful. We're for the people. Unquote. The candidate pledging to fight for the middle class. It's also in that speech. No, that wasn't yesterday. That was Al Gore, 2000. Fighting. For the middle class. The um, meme of fighting for the middle class uh, clearly did not originate with Hillary Clinton. It's been around in Democratic campaign circles for quite a while, uh, promoted um, by, among others, uh, a, a longtime Democratic political consultant, operative uh, strategist uh, named Robert Shrum, whose candidates always proclaimed they were fighting. Fighting for you, fighting for the thing, for the fight. And it, it occurred to me that perhaps the point of the exercise, it, it's widely believed to uh, be designed to appeal to the Democratic, uh, liberal, or progressive base that uh, is concerned about income inequality. And, and certainly Hillary Clinton uh, and her campaign people feel the... Uh, the uh, desirability of uh, appealing to those people, especially since there are uh, candidates in the Democratic primary running to her left. But it occurs to me there's another purpose for the continual use of this fighting meme, and it has nothing to do with the issues. It has to do with the fact that Republicans are always accusing Democrats of being weak on something. Weak on communism, weak on terrorism, weak on this, weak on that. And the idea is, no, we're not weak. We're fighters. We're fighters. So it, it, it may, I know this is radical to say, it may have nothing to do with the issues. Uh, Hillary Clinton did uh, make one really memorable, to me, memorable statement uh, in her appearance yesterday at uh, Roosevelt Island, and I think it goes something like this. I'll propose specific policies to reward businesses who invest in long-term value rather than the quick buck. Because that leads to higher growth for the economy, higher wages for workers, and yes, bigger profits. Everybody will have a better time. Now, if you read, as I did, the uh, printed text of her speech, I know, I had time to kill. Uh, That last line wasn't in it. 
that apparently was a, an ad lib while she was trying to find her place in her in her text. But it just sounded to me like like hootenanny time. Everybody will have a better 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 time. Come on, everybody. All right, nobody. Hello, welcome to the show.
from New Orleans, Louisiana, ladies and gentlemen, where I, I the, the musical diet is so varied here, I actually heard a cover version of To Serve With Love last night. Not To Serve With Gloves. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Yes, news of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen. First, from Government Executive Magazine. I read it for the pictures. Uh, And uh, their report is on uh, an Inspector General's report on our good friends at the TSA. The Transportation Safety Administration is already under scrutiny for poor performance in a test of airport screening for passengers carrying illegal objects. You may have seen that. Now we learn it needs to improve its vetting of job job candidates for possible terrorism and other criminal ties, according to the Homeland Security Inspector General, John Roth. His report generally praised the agency's multi-layered worker credentialing process. Tom? It was multi-layered? Yes, it was. But testing by uh, auditors for the Inspector General showed that TSA did not identify 73 individuals with terrorism-related category codes because TSA is not authorized to receive all terrorism-related information under current interagency watch-listing policy. That's right. They're still not talking to each other. After all this time, after the 9-11 thing and the 9-11 commission and the thing and the thing, the the, the radios are still not interoperable, apparently. Uh, The TSA acknowledged that these individuals were cleared for access to secure airport areas despite representing a potential security threat. So uh, be nice to them uh, because they got trouble. Uh, To test the accuracy and effectiveness of TSA's terrorism vetting procedures, the Counterterrorism Center was asked to match more than 900,000 records of active aviation workers against its Terrorist Identities Data Mart Environment Database. That would be the TIDE. See? See? The acronyms are so handy. According to the report, the TSA was unable to find 73 individuals linked to terrorism. The TSA did not have the entire terror watch list. The uh, vetting and re-vetting procedures according to the report the TSA used, are generally effective in identifying workers with links to terrorism. The uh, agency has advised airports to deny or revoke 58 airport workers as a result of its vetting process. It had less effective controls in place to ensure airports have a robust verification process for a credential applicant's criminal history. That would be nice to know. The IG investigation is just the latest in a series that have called out the TSA for massive security breaches. Last week, news broke undercover federal agents had a 95% rate at sneaking fake bombs and other banned weapons past airport security checkpoints during multiple tests. The acting administrator of the TSA was reassigned less than 24 hours after that report went public. Don't you fire people for this? No, you reassign them. And uh, more from the inspector general. Over the last 13 years... Uh, guess how much the, the United States, you and me, have spent building infrastructure 
bridges, roads, schools, and hospitals in a certain country. $104 billion. That would build a lot of bridges, roads, schools, and hospitals. We could use that. Unfortunately, that's what we've spent building that stuff in Afghanistan. The Pentagon has also trained and equipped that country's military, of course. Now, more than a decade later, Afghanistan is still largely reliant on foreign assistance, reports the Fiscal Times, raising serious questions over the country will ever really be self-sustainable. No one has been more critical of the reconstruction efforts than the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, John Sopko. The mission's price tag has now ballooned to be bigger than the Marshall Plan. Ask your parents. Earlier this year, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction released a damning assessment of the military, saying that after the Pentagon spent a decade pumping more than $65 billion into recruiting, training, and arming them, the Afghan troops were at their lowest, weakest level in years. Maybe they'd be better if we spent less? How, how could you tell? The... Um, Inspector General said the Afghan security forces had 20,000 fewer troops now than last year, based on numbers provided by the Afghan Defense Ministry. Although the IG does question the accuracy of the information the ministry provides, saying there's really no way to determine whether it's correct, making it impossible to measure the size or the capabilities of the Afghan military. This, of course, raises questions on what happens when we leave. We always leave. We don't live there. It's it's weird. The the countries that that live there stay there. Isn't that, isn't that nutty? The evidence strongly suggests that Afghanistan lacks the capacity, financial, technical, managerial, or otherwise, to maintain, support, and execute much of what has been built or established during more than 13 years of international assistance, says Sopko. The inspector general is worried that the Afghan ministries aren't in any way ready to stand on their own. Well, they got a good neighbor, Iran. They got money. You know, the Brits turned it over to the Russians. The Russians turned it over to us. Let's get, let's rope the Iranians into this. That'll fix them. News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Um, bad banks are always in the news, even when we don't have the music for them. It's my fault. I'm not, I'm not, no fingers being pointed. Um, well, there there is a finger being pointed. It's being pointed at me. Um, but this is this is a pretty interesting stuff here. This is to give you some sense of how the situation with large banks is being treated in at least one other country that has a lot of large banks, big international, multinational, mega banks. Britain. From the Financial Times, at his annual speech to the City of London this week, the governor of the Bank of England, that's uh, basically like the head of our Federal Reserve, Mark Carney, he's a Canadian. They hired a Canadian to run their bank. Wow. Uh, He announced an end to, quote, the age of irresponsibility, unquote, and ethical drift with the introduction of tougher criminal sanctions for market abuse those sanctions will, will be extended to parts of the financial system that had, up to now, been unregulated. Criminal sanctions, like perp walks, like 
jail. The clampdown is in response to a string of scandals that have cost big banks, including Barclays, HSBC, and Royal Bank of Scotland, billions of dollars in fines for misconduct, such as the rigging of the LIBOR interest rate benchmarks and the rigging of foreign exchange markets. Just some rigging. What are you doing there? Just some rigging. Must be outriggers. No, we're in here. Okay. Unethical behavior went unchecked, proliferated, and eventually became the norm, said the head of the Bank of England. Quote, too many participants neither felt responsible for the system nor recognized the full impact of their actions, unquote. He says nine-figure fines are not the solution. Attention, U.S. Justice Department and Securities and Exchange Commission. He presented a 100-page plan to clean up behavior and strengthen accountability in bond trading, currency, and commodity markets, and um, other markets. 21 recommendations include the creation of new laws on civil and criminal abuse of the foreign exchange market, which has previously had little oversight. Maximum criminal penalties for market abuse will be extended from 7 to 10 years in prison, in line with other fraud offenses. To give the measures teeth, top bankers can be fined or banned starting next year. That will be extended to shadow bank participants. This would be hedge fund and private equity dudes and and dudettes. This is expected to extend the penalties to thousands of people, including asset managers, interdealer brokers, and hedge fund managers at a time when regulators around the world are extending their scrutiny beyond banks. Not so much here. It will also set common standards for training and qualifications of staff in the fixed income trading, that's basically bonds, and introduce a register so people fired by one company can't simply move to another without their record being known. You know, like priests? A new industry-led market standards board will promote best practices, but Carney, the head of the Bank of England, warned if companies do not fall into line, quote, more restrictive regulation is inevitable. Acknowledging that the bank had itself been to blame for some failings in markets, including both the LIBOR and foreign exchange scandals, he announced a new code of conduct to extend principles of the senior manager's regime to his staff all the way up to the governor. That regime calls for criminal and civil penalties for naughties. That's how they do it. That's how they're proposing to do it. That's how they're fixing to do it in England, ladies and gentlemen. But what do they know? Well, it's, it's just England. And um, you may have been keeping track of um, one of the weirdest stories this year. The tendency of the Pentagon to uh, be sending live anthrax here and there. Remember how scared we were about anthrax in 2001? Some guy was prosecuted when apparently he was totally innocent of sending anthrax. Well, the Pentagon's done it some more. On Friday, they added Japan to the list of countries that received live anthrax samples. Oh, they're just samples. You don't have to buy anything. From the U.S. military, a news report said the lab that sent out the bacteria faced sanctions eight years ago for failing to kill specimens. That lab, well, it was, I mean, it received, it was a count, it was never fined. The sample that went to Japan was sent to the U.S. military base, Camp Zama, near Tokyo, and was destroyed four years after it was received in 2005. The anthrax, which was sent to Japan for the purpose of testing detection equipment, came from a master lot. 
that was thought to have been inactive but turned out to be active when tested. I blame the test. Otherwise, we could have still believed. It is important to note that there currently is no anthrax activated or inactivated in Japan at this time, said a Pentagon spokesperson. Five countries outside the United States are now known to have received live anthrax samples, Australia, Canada, South Korea, Britain, and Japan. They're not the five eyes. I don't know what they are. 69 labs in 19 states and Washington, D.C. also received live samples. They're spreading it around. The Pentagon is generous with their live anthrax samples. Investigators have been trying to determine whether the inadvertent shipments of the live anthrax, which can be used as a biological weapon, stemmed from quality control problems at a U.S. base in Utah, the Dugway Proving Ground. USA Today on Friday said that in 2007, lab inspectors from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention cited the Dugway lab for using an experimental chemical treatment, a method for killing anthrax specimens, that was ineffective and resulted in an unauthorized transfer of the bacteria to another facility. The CDC was quoted as saying inspectors found Dugway staff apparently ignored the results of their own kill confirmation tests that showed growth of bacteria even after the chemical inactivation was done and shipped the sample anyway. Ooh, ooh, oh, well, maybe it'll die in transit. Maybe the mail, maybe the post office will kill it. The CDC referred Dugway to the Department of Health. The, de- offices, in, the department's Office of Inspector General did not issue any fines, even though it agreed that an unauthorized transfer of live anthrax had occurred. The CDC noted that 2007 case involved a chemical method of inactivating anthrax, not the gamma ray method that is the focus of the current probe. It may be we don't have a good method for inactivating live anthrax. Wouldn't that be nutty? Nobody wins this race we run This hedonistic marathon Where creature comforts offer none We're either drunk or thirsty Take it with a grain of salt The haves and the have-nots Gestalt It's always someone else's fault Have a little mercy With such impressive pedigree Like these, we cut and then we curtsy. We sit here on the tallest stack, begrudging these few things we lack. But who will make us give them back? Have
As a Christian reality show goes off the air, it's followed by something else. And is Brian Williams' future at NBC being tested right now? Got to be inside Extra Access tonight for the middle of June 2015. Hi, everybody. I'm Mike DeVere. And I'm Pat Mungo, back from Re-Re-Rehab. No fall is steeper than the fall of a successful TV reality show. Not even a tumble off Mount Everest. And that's what happened to the avowedly Christian family that starred in the mini mega hit series 19 Children and Counting when one of their sons was revealed to have done a mini nasty with two of his teen sisters. The show's fall off the schedule was faster than a safe off the top of the Hollywood sign. But fortunately, there are always more reality shows in the wings. Even though reality shows don't even have stages, let alone wings. The latest is an answer to 19 Kids and Counting, and it comes from the fast-rising reality channel, Actual TV. We thought, okay, we've seen Christian families with lots of children. We've explored that lifestyle. That's very off the mainstream. Uh, how do we how, how do we top that? Dennis Dolby is head of Actual TV. Barbara Plotz came to see us with uh, this uh, this idea, and it just seemed so fresh, so uh, out there, and uh, given the absence of uh, children in the cast, so relatively foolproof. My pitch to Dennis was simple: two atheists, no kids. Uh, what's that lifestyle like? <laughs> he said, "Godless and childless," and. Uh, since he runs the network, that became the name of the show. Barbara Plotz had run the Animal Planet's spin-off channel, The Plant Network, when she left for the world of reality TV. Godless and Childless could be her first hit. Ray and Deidre turned out to be our perfect couple. They couldn't have been more perfect if we'd spent two weeks interviewing hundreds of atheist couples across the country, which we did. They're almost never in the house in the evenings or on weekends, so there's so much variety in the backdrops. They do something different virtually every Sunday morning, so there's surprises. And, and uh, lucky for us, they have the best fights. You know, those dishes didn't walk away, right? Huh. Or, 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 or did you suddenly start believing in magical dish fairies. No, I started believing that my husband is a raving idiot. Oh, oh, that's real rational. But with only two people in the cast, wasn't network head Dennis Dolby concerned about viewers getting reality star fatigue? I, uh, I've never heard of that. What is that? 
We should look into that. I thought that having just two people to focus on would make this uh, this project even more compelling. Their world is so small and yet at the same time so big. They can go anywhere and do anything. And sometimes they do. And they have so many kinds of friends. So it's really a much larger cast. Really? Godless and Childless premieres on actual TV right after the season finale of The Real Housewives of Roller Derby. Ever since he fell off his anchor chair last February in a tumble swifter than a seal sliding down a glacier, Brian Williams has been wondering about his fate at NBC. And so has everybody else, including NBC. This week, Inside Extra Access and I got a sneak glimpse of a test of what may be his next role at the network. When I got the call, I uh, first of all, I have to admit, I, I was surprised because I had offered to replace uh, Seth Meyers on the late night show. So this... This came, you might say, out of the clear blue, which made it, in a way, uh, even more welcome. You know, when you host a show by yourself for a good number of years, and uh, then they ask you to uh, share the desk and the chair and the whole office, there's a temptation to see it as, as racism or criticism or, or racism. But then I began to see that uh, Brian and I brought different things to the table. I bring my uh, gravitas. He brings what he brings. And uh, what I really began to see from what they were telling me was that uh, this was the best way for me to at least keep having access to the office or at least the table. In a small studio in Brooklyn, far away from the bright lights of Rockefeller Plaza, Brian Williams and Al Sharpton were taping a pilot this week for their new talk show, The Straight and Narrow. NBC News executive Jim Paranormia explained the concept exclusively to Inside Extra Access tonight. As I told the people at Newsweek, the idea of this show is to bring two very potent and very different television personalities together for an hour and see what happens. Brian, with uh, the side people have seen in his Letterman appearances, is, is, is irreverence. And Al, of course, is irreverent. It's a natural but like any natural, you have to work really hard to make it look natural. We weren't allowed to film footage of the actual pilot. That's only for top executives and the network's hackers. But Brian Williams seemed pleased with the results. I'm uh, the straight because I come from news and because of his diet. He is the narrow. So there's the attitude of the show right there uh, before, before we even turn the lights on. I think uh, Brian is a closet racist. Uh, we kid about that. So there's the chemistry. Insiders think Straight and Arrow is surely headed for Outsiders. And soon. That wraps it and tears it for this edition, but Inside Extra Access tonight comes rolling back tomorrow with the results of our latest IEAT Insta Twitter poll. We asked which new online music service you'd use, and the results will have you streaming. Till then, I'm Mike DeVere. And I'm Pat Mungo. So long from Culver City. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? I think you will. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. 
Well, what's happening with the polar bears, you might be asking at this point in time, especially if you're a polar bear. And we welcome our polar bear listeners. Please give. Norwegian scientists have seen polar bears eating dolphins. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we can take credit for that. In the Arctic, for the first time ever, they blame global warming for the bears expanding their diet. Polar bears feed mainly on seals, but uh, Jan Ars at the Norwegian Polar Institute has photographed dolphins being devoured by a bear, published his findings in the latest edition of Polar Research. It's likely that new species are appearing in the diet of polar bears due to climate change because new species are finding their way north, he told Agence France. The first incident he documented was last April when his team came across a polar bear feeding on the carcasses of two white-beaked dolphins. Dolphins are regularly seen in the Norwegian Arctic in the summer months when the ice has melted. They've never been observed during winter or spring when the sea is usually covered in sheets of ice or blanketed in sheets of ice or sheeted in blankets. But Norwegian scientists have reported a strong retreat of ice and two nearly ice-free winters in recent years, which they said could have attracted the dolphins farther north where they probably became trapped by the sudden arrival of dense ice blown into a fjord by strong northerly winds. R said the bear he photographed had probably caught the two dolphins when they surfaced to breathe. Even if they saw the bear, the dolphins did not necessarily have any other choice. It's a visibly skinny old male bear in the photo, devouring one of the dolphins and storing the second one under the snow for later. Something the scientists had never seen before. Neither had the dolphins, needless to say. The causes and consequences of global warming are still under debate, but what would actually happen to all the plants? They're not cute enough to care about. The plants are central to many aspects of our lives. What would happen if the climate in the planet gets warmer? A new study published in the open access journal PLOS Biology by University of Hawaii scientists addresses that question. A key potential benefit of global warming, supposedly, was that plants at northern latitudes would thrive in a warmer world. They get more CO2. Plants consume that, put out oxygen, win-win. However, this prevailing assumption ignores the fact that plants in the north will be, remain limited by the num- amount of solar radiation, which curbs the positive effects of warming and additional CO2 availability. That same warming, on the other hand, could surpass plant temperature tolerances in tropical areas around the world and further be accompanied by drought. Those that think climate change will benefit plants need to see the light, literally and figuratively, says uh, Camilo Moro, Mora, professor at the University of Hawaii and lead author of the new study. A narrow focus on the factors that influence plant growth has led, major, led to major underestimations of the potential impact of climate change on plants, not only at higher latitudes but more severely in the tropics, exposing the world to dire consequences, he says. The new study shows that ongoing climate change will lead to overall declines in plant growing days by 2100 due to that mixture of warming, drought, and limited solar radiation up north. Nobody thought about the sun. Don't forget the sun. The rapidly rising levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere affect the plant's absorption of nitrogen, which is the nutrient that restricts crop growth in most terrestrial ecosystems. Researchers at the University of Gothenburg have now revealed the concentration of nitrogen in plants' tissue is lower in air with high levels of carbon dioxide, regardless of whether or not the plant's growth is stimulated. Follow that? This is in the journal Global Change Biology. 
Researchers have been working with Swedish and international colleagues to compile data on how elevated levels of carbon dioxide impact on plant growth and nitrogen absorption various kinds of ecosystem. The findings of the study are unequivocal. The nitrogen content in the crops is reduced in atmospheres with raised carbon dioxide levels in all three ecosystem types. We see the negative effect exists regardless of whether or not the plant's growth increases. Even if fertilizer is added, this is unexpected and new, says the lead researcher. When carbon dioxide levels in the air increase, crops in the future will have reduced nitrogen content and therefore reduced protein levels. The study found this for both wheat and rice. So, don't eat wheat and rice in the future. We'll figure out what you can eat uh, a little later on. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Something really... Here we go. Something really was slow in starting. The weather here has been as nice as it can be. Although it doesn't really matter much to me.
This is the show, and now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. So sorry. U.S. Senator Mark Kirk of Illinois apologized this week through a spokeswoman after being caught on a live microphone using a word that's disparaging to women. Kirk, who's seeking election, re-election next year, called fellow Republican senator and presidential candidate Lindsey Graham of South Carolina a, quote, Bro with no hoe, unquote, in remarks captured on a live microphone on a U.S. Senate panel. Graham of South Carolina is widely described as a lifelong bachelor. That's what we'd say on the, Kirk goes on to say, the rest of the sentence is muffled, but he seems to say South Side, a reference to a swath of heavily minority Chicago neighborhoods. Kirk however, lives in the Chicago suburb of Highland Park. He told Politico he regretted the remarks but didn't elaborate. He later apologized to the spokeswoman. Senator Kirk was joking with his colleague, and he immediately apologized to anyone offended by his remark. Comments blew up on Twitter, which is your comment blow-up headquarters. Dateline Jerusalem, the chief executive of French telecom giant Orange S.A., apologized to Israel's prime minister this week for his recent comments on pulling out of Israel, saying he opposes the boycott movement against the state and will continue to invest in it. CEO Stéphane Richard stoked anger in Israel last week after announcing he wanted to sever business ties with Israel as soon as possible, citing a desire to improve business relations in the Arab world. I regret deeply this controversy, and I want to make totally clear that Orange as a company has never supported and will never support any kind of boycott against Israel, he said in a fake French accent. Newark, New Jersey native Shaquille O'Neal is distancing distancing himself from controversial comments that appeared on his Facebook page and personal blog. It's almost as if he doesn't write them. No, it's not almost as if. Uh, the comments claim the company, uh, no, he claims the company he hired to run his website wrote an unauthorized post suggesting that the 9-11 attacks were an inside job. After the comments angered fans on Facebook, your fan-angering headquarters, O'Neill released a statement denying ever being a 9-11 truther. Uh, according to Shaquille's version of events, an employee from Digital Mavericks, a firm he contracted to manage his social media content, authored the post without his knowledge. This post was insulting and offensive, and I apologize to everyone who came across it, says Shaq. Once I learned it was on my Facebook page and blog, I ordered it removed and fired the firm that posted it. I am not and have never been a 9-11 truther. My father served our country, and I'm immensely proud of the sacrifices people make daily to keep it safe. Yes, you might want to know whether your favorite celebrity is writing their own stuff. Sure, ask. Stephen A. Smith, a uh, sports commentator for ESPN, took to Twitter this week to apologize for making a terrible joke. Well, people reacted to it as a terrible joke about women's World Cup players when he was on SportsCenter on ESPN. After a clip of the Norway-Germany game, what a game, by the way. Did you see that? No, me neither. Uh, played on the program's top ten segment, Smith suggested 
Marin Mieldi successfully scored on a free kick because the German players, quote, might not have wanted to mess their hair up. Smith took some heat and then tweeted a series of apologies. Folks, as usual, something I've said is gaining steam, so let me address this right now. Flip comment and fun I made about a woman's soccer team and wanting to mess up their hair. Obviously, my comments were in poor taste. I have nothing but the utmost respect for athletes of all genders, especially since most are better than I'll ever be. So please know I'm very sorry. I apologize. It was certainly not my intent to offend anyone. Stephen A. Smith. Luxembourg, the the country. You've heard of it. Apologized to the Jewish community this week for its suffering during the Nazi occupation in World War II. This is the first such gesture since the conflict ended 70 years ago. Yes, they did wait a while to make sure that uh, they know who, who won. You, you never want to jump into these things. The government of the tiny duchy, which is nestled between France, Belgium, and Germany, acknowledged that, quote, certain representatives of the Luxembourg authorities had been complicit. Luxembourg's Jewish community is proud yet well integrated into society, says Agence France France, with a lengthy history spanning well over a millennium. Out of 3,700 Jews living in Luxembourg before the war, 1,200 were killed during the period of Nazi occupation. The government presents its apology to the Jewish community for the suffering that was inflicted on it and the injustices that were committed against it and recognizes the responsibility of some public officials in the unforgivable events committed, said a declaration signed by the Prime Minister. Bet you can't tell me his name, Prime Minister of Luxembourg? I thought so. 60 Luxembourg MPs also adopted a resolution recognizing, quote, the suffering inflicted on the Jewish population to its Luxembourgish and foreign members during the Nazi occupation. The parliament also apologized for wrongdoing in which the Luxembourg public authorities were also engaged. Many of the Luxembourg Jews killed in the Holocaust had fled Germany before the war and sought refuge in Luxembourg. Uh, By the way, Belgium, its neighbor, made a similar apology six years ago. It's catching on in the neighborhood. Global toy brand Lego has had some explaining to do over the description of one of its new toys. The product, called Turg, and part of the company's Mixels line, is a character with a long tongue and a single eye. Lego described the toy on its website as an experiment gone wrong. Part frog, part chicken, part back-of-the-bus window licker. This Mixel has the longest tongue of them all. That That description received strong criticism from mental health advocates, according to the BBC, which says mental health charity leaders were appalled at the offensive phrase, a window licker is a derogatory term for a person with mental disability, it turns out. In a statement, Lego's vice president for the UK and Ireland said, Lego's aim is to inspire creativity using quirky fictional characters to help children express their imaginations. We are very sorry that wording which could be considered offensive has been used, as this has not been our intention at all. As an immediate result of the input we have received, the product description for the Mixels character Turg has been changed on our website. We have looked at all our processes to make sure this does not happen again. Unquote Lego. Nice people. And uh, the Egyptian president, Abdul Fattah al-Sisi, has apologized to the nation for alleged human rights abuses committed by his police in a statement issued last week. His comments were made to address an incident of a police officer beating a lawyer with a shoe and accusations of torture and arbitrary arrests leveled against the country's police. I apologize to every Egyptian citizen who's been subjected to any abuse. I'm accountable for anything that happens to an Egyptian citizen, he said. All right, then. We'll we'll remember that. Uh, Now some more apologies.
first of all, you uh, may be aware of the uh, police officer in McKinney, Texas, who was videoed uh, kneeing down a, a young teenage girl at a pool party last week. This is uh, that police officer's attorney. I did mean the part about... No, this is not that. <laughs> uh, maybe it's this. With all that had happened that day, he allowed his emotions to get the better of him. Eric regrets that his conduct portrayed him in his department in a negative light. He never intended to mistreat anyone, but was only reacting to a situation and the challenges that it presented. He apologizes to all who were offended. That day was not representative of the 10-year service to the community of McKinney, and it is in his hope that by his resignation, the community may start to heal. What the voice you started to hear there was Sir Tim Hunt, a Nobel Prize-winning British scientist who made remarks which some women took to be off-putting. He apologized and has later resigned his post. Here he is. I did mean the part about having having trouble with girls. I mean, it, it is true that people I have fallen in love with people in the lab, and the people in the lab have fallen in love with me, and it's very disruptive to the science um, because it's it's terribly important that in a lab people are sort of on 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 a level playing field. And I found that, um, you know, these emotional entanglements mm. yeah. made life very difficult. Ugh. I mean, I'm really, really sorry that mm. uh, I caused any offense. That's mm-hmm. awful. Yeah. I mean, I certainly didn't mean, I, I just meant to be honest, actually. Well, that, that was your first mistake. And NPR talk show host Diane Rehm began a supposed question to Democratic presidential candidate or uh, running for the nomination, Bernie Sanders, this week on her radio show. Senator, you have dual citizenship with Israel. Well, well no, I do not have dual citizenship with Israel. I'm an Amer- That's, I don't know where that question came from. I'm an American citizen, and I have visited Israel on a couple of occasions. No, I'm an American citizen, period. I understand from a list we have gotten that you were on that list. No. Forgive me if that is... Now that's some of the nonsense that goes on in the Internet, uh, but that is Interesting. absolutely not true. Are there members of Congress who do have dual citizenship, or is that part of the fable? I, I honestly don't know, but I have read that on the Internet. You know, my dad came to this country from Poland. At the age of 17. All right, we get that. We get it, Bernie. Um, Diane Rehm has now apologized for that. I apologized immediately. I want to apologize as well to all our listeners for having made an erroneous statement. I'm sorry for the mistake. I'm glad to play a role in putting this rumor to rest. It was in her briefing papers as a comment submitted by a listener on, this, on the show's Facebook page. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Oh, please give. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the East Coast. 
by the shortwave giant, WBCQ, the planet. 7.490 megahertz shortwave around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want it, harryshear.com and kcsn.org. Available on the Mighty 104 in Berlin, did I say that? Available for your smartphone through stitch.com and available as a free podcast at Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, and www.no.org. And it'd be just like having dual citizenship somewhere. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Already, thank you very much. Uh huh. Typical show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. Me? I'm on Twitter, waiting to for that angry response at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans.